occupying lane three, Australia. Defending champions Drew Ginn and Duncan Free in the stroke seat. Cross, if you just take a look at those Australians, more languid, more fluid experience of uh, Drew Ginn. Remember, he was the one who won this title with James Tompkins in Athens, and it's taking them through to a 1,000 metres in the lead, I think. Yes, and despite the New Zealanders really pushing hard, 137.16 for that second quarter. But Australia now beginning to open up once again. There are plenty of Australian fans here, some 20,000 fans here in the stand. And this will warm the heart, certainly, of the Australians, because this is a truly world-class performance. As you said, you don't see many finals at this level won by this margin, but literally everybody who is a rowing fan is on their feet and applauding Duncan Free and Drew Ginn, who have defended their championship magnificently. After racing internationally for a number of years and competing at the Rio Olympics, we realized that each athlete has an epic story and a journey behind every performance. And there's so much more to the Olympics than just that final race. We know the passion we have for sport is shared by thousands of others around the world, and we want to bring these stories to you. On The Row Show, we have a look behind the scenes to understand the journey each athlete has taken to get to the Olympics. We get into the years of work and dedication and the hardships an athlete has to endure to have a chance of standing on the greatest sporting stage in the world and a chance for glory. Welcome to The Row Show. We are your hosts, Lawrence Britton and Jay Green. This is a podcast we're going to be going into everything related to sport and performance. And we're also going to talk a bit about rowing. In South Africa. It brings people together, it breaks down barriers. My passion Winning. is to be the best. Being the best is something we strive for. It's a crucial role in South Africa. Passion. Great. Passion. Fiction. Gold. Ultimate goal. Glory. Relentless training. Pain. Pain. <laughs> Hey guys, uh, just some housekeeping before we get going. For those of you who are our sensitive listeners, uh, rowers are renowned for having the most terrible language. So we try and keep it clean, but every now and then there is the occasional curse word. So you guys have been warned. Last week we also asked you guys to help us out by each of you getting one of your mates to start listening to the show. So if you did that, uh, then thanks so much and a big welcome to all the new listeners. Let's keep up the good work and keep spreading the row show to help us grow. It's really going to make a huge difference and going to improve the show in the long run. You can also get hold of us on Instagram or email us at therowshowsa at gmail.com if you have any queries or ideas or even if you just want to chat. Just a quick shout out to Just Rowing. Um, They are Instagram's most successful rowing page and they're bringing really epic content to the rowing community from all over the world. Keep a lookout for some epic stuff coming from there in the future. That's just rowing on Instagram. And we also have another shout out to the games.co.za. They are a website that is home to all the Olympic sports, offering news, updates, and everything you need to know about your favorite South African athletes and sporting codes. It is their mission to provide broad coverage of all codes, including rowing, and establish a platform that truly belongs to the various sporting communities across the country. We are doing some awesome work with them, so go check that out. That is thegames.co.za. Nice, dude. Just a reminder that this is part two of the Drew Ginn episode. So if you haven't listened to part one, then we would advise you to go back and listen to part one first or just do whatever you would like. In part one, we finished off with Drew getting into his build-up into the Beijing Olympics 
and how he really started to get that pair working for him and Duncan Free and he faced some awesome challenges from the Kiwis. So just to refresh your mind, Drew competed internationally for 19 years from 1994 to 2012 and is one of the legends in sweep rowing. Drew raced his first Olympics in 1996 with the awesome foursome where he came away with a gold medal at the ripe age of 21. Then, four years later, disaster struck before his Sydney home Olympics, and he, he hurt his back, and that took him out of his home Olympics, which was a major disaster for Drew. But he came back stronger and harder and started drawing in the pair with James Tompkins, which led to Olympic success in 2004 with a gold medal. He then kept on going eager for another Olympic campaign and with a new partner this time Duncan Free went on to win another Olympic gold medal in Beijing 2008. After Beijing and following another back surgery Drew got in it again this time back in the fall with some younger partners and his Olympic campaign in London saw him go go home with a silver medal. Yeah, we hope that uh, once again you are thoroughly excited to uh, listen to this part two. It's it really is epic and even more of a roller coaster ride than part one. We suggest that you pause this now and go watch some of the epic races of Drew's career. All the links are on the show notes below. It will really help you give you a bit of context into what we're going to be talking about in this episode. Yeah, or afterwards go and watch them after you listen to it, and then it'll give you even more context to the racing uh, when you've heard someone someone that's been in the boat chat about the racing a big chunk of this episode we're going to get into drew's last two olympic campaigns his 2008 beijing campaign and his 2012 one in london part of that we're going to get into how he got through injury and how that taught him so much we also got to get into how what it was like rowing with the 2k record holder josh dunkley smith we know all the fat ergos fans out there you are going to love that part and we're going to get into our quick five questions and of course those always give us such uh, incredible answers so Please, without further ado, enjoy part two of Drugin. Then, okay, so then moving, so 2008, I mean, we, 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 you mentioned it a bit earlier, we know that you, your back, your back was, was really bad again uh, over that regatta. And I raced with uh, Sean, who raced in, in, the, in 2016, and he was in that, that race with you guys. And, and he said that you guys didn't really even row that much that week. <laughs> yes. We knew that we, how this plays out is quite humorous. Is that I ruptured my disc in the heat road. Um, I started having issues on my back uh, due to the travel from the uh, the village out of the course, and we sort of we flagged it as a concern um, because I had my back issues before and, and these hard seats on these buses, and I was getting achy day after day. And so halfway through the heat road, all of a sudden I felt this real um, simple flick in the lower part of my back, and um, just a bit disconnected. Got to the end of the race and sort of got out of the boat and said to my coach, uh, I've done what I did in 2000, I can feel it. And he goes, what? And I said, yep, it's exactly the same feeling. You know? and, uh, and so I squatted down next to the boat after the heat road. He picked the boat up and then as I stood up, he put it on my shoulders and we walked into the sheds. And why that was significant was we already kicked into the gear, into gear, which was we weren't going to show anyone what was going on. So, so that week... Um, we basically had uh, Duncan on a stationary bike. Uh, sorry, I was on a stationary bike, or or not training, and and Duncan was on an ergo. Um, we didn't go back out in the water between the heat and the semi-final. It took us two days, um, and and at the time it was two days. It seemed like you know two lifetimes um, for us to come up with a solution, which was actually it's okay not to row, 
And so, I mean, you guys know, like, when you train twice a day every single day on the water and you get very used to that being your routine and, and that's sort of almost like your magic as to why you feel good, and then you can't do that, um, it rattled your cage a fair bit to sort of go, like, how do we do this? So the new solution was um, we can still do the race plan. Duncan can sit on the ergo. I can sit on the stationary bike. We borrowed a stationary bike from the, from the Canadians next door. And um, Dave Calder and uh, and Scott Franzden walked past one day, and we only found out this afterwards. Um, I think we were having a beer or whatever it was, and uh, and they sort of made the comment. They thought we were playing psychological games. I mean, that, that was their, their sort of take on the Aussies are up to something here. Um, but what no one what no one knew was, you know, if we had got on the water, we might have cost you know completely our Olympic games. And we sort of thought, well, if we're getting on the water just to keep ourselves feeling good, um, and, and you know we do a few racing pieces if we were out there, but um, it was so damn hot anyway. So to not be on the water and then get on the water for the semi final was you know one of the most hyped experiences we've both ever had. And uh, and then to get through the semi final and go, geez, that actually sort of worked, even though I felt really compromised in my lower back. Um, it was like, right, can we get through another thirty minutes of pain? And and that was the thing with Dunks was giving him confidence to say, you just keep doing what we've done in everything in our training, our racing, and I'll work out a way sitting in the bow seat to keep it straight, basically. Um, and so. That that final was um, you were competing against so much more than just the other guys in the other boats, and um, and and Scott and Dave were, you know, throwing the gauntlet down completely, and they had an amazing year that year in the pair, and so much so that you know it could have been easy for them to win a gold medal, really easy because they were flying, um, and so for Dunks and I just to hold it together, and for Dunks in particular, you know, it'd be really easy to panic when you got your crewmate like I was, and um, it was just a mental game really that whole week, just to sort of get through it all, um, and then be able to row in a way that. I mean, if you guys ever had back issues where you feel a bit disconnected around your belly um, and it's not quite all working, your legs are going, but your your body doesn't really feel connected. And uh, my right leg started going a bit floppy with about 400 metres to go. And I remember um, we got really close to the boy line, and uh, but we had enough of a margin, a boat length or a boat length and a half. And, and I just kept saying to Dunks, just maintain, keep the pressure on, keep the pressure on. And just, I was almost trying to drop the blade in half a blade to a blade earlier. But not kick it, you know, if, if you know what I mean. Like so, just to get in the water so the boat at least stayed straight and um, and didn't have a whole lot of pressure on it. And when we crossed the finish line, I laid down in the boat and uh, and really struggled to get back up, you know, sort of thing. So uh, had surgery a week after when I got back to Australia, and um, you know, the doctor was sort of saying, "You've done so much damage in here, um, you know, don't know how you did it." But I think that's the thing is, at the time, you just you just focus on doing each little thing to get to the next day or get to the next session, you know, I guess the next thing you do, you know, so, um, you know, I think if I had really thought about it too much, you probably would have panicked a lot more, but um, good teammate, good coach, you know, amazing sort of outcome to get through all that. Yeah, and uh, I think that's a really good example about a philosophy that we we chat a lot about here in South Africa. It's about being able to win, still being, still being able to win in really crap conditions or less than ideal conditions. And I think that's a really good example of how you know when maybe you get a mishap and your back's not okay that still doesn't change the overall objective in the week and how do you go through and deal with it and still pull out a really good performance and going away with a gold medal um so drew we want to we want to chat a little bit about hypothetical situations in the pair um so <laughs> we the first part is like i'm sure you you're aware of the 2000 olympics pairs race where the french pair go berserker at the 1k and absolutely demolish the field 
Yes, I'm very aware of it. So, <laughs> so the, the sidelines are watching it. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's a huge we another one that we love to watch. If you were in that race and you were in the lead, and the French pair all of a sudden just went max and went right up on you, what would you, your reaction be? Um, I need to I need to explain this uh, really well because I I the, the French pair for my mind what they did that day was one of the most courageous things uh, many crews that I've ever seen really roll the dice and back themselves to get a win and and for fear of losing gold and not getting a medal at all. So, so that's the first part. Second part is they'd done that all the way through their own crews, but the difference was they were doing it for a third place or a second place or sometimes for a fourth place. So if you look back over the videos, in 1999 in St. Catharines in Canada, with about 700 metres to go against the Croatians, they popped the rate up to you know 40 plus strokes a minute, and the Croatians are trying to do the same thing, and eventually they break them and they come back on us to get silver. Um, go back a few steps further, uh, 1997, Agbolet France, um, at their own home world championships, um, the uh, the Canadian pair got out to a blinder. Um, now you don't see this, but the French pair took off after the 1,000 metre mark to try to catch them, and when they rode through them, just kept going. So 1996, same thing, where they take off is very early around the 1,000 metre mark, and the Australians actually you know, um, did a very good job of sprinting home that year as well. And the only time that I can find a result from Jean-Christophe and Michael Roland um, that is different to that is 1991, when they went sub-130 or 131 or 130 and a half to the 500-metre mark in Vienna. Um, and they did that when they led the race against uh, Redgrave and Pinsent when they were um, a very young pair. So... So as young athletes, they had the ability to produce speed. As older athletes, they got smart about setting their race up really well in the first 1,000. Um, and I've explained this, I suppose, maybe in a bit more detail than it really requires. But in 2000, what I thought was extraordinary was to see them launch that. Um, I saw it from the sidelines. Um, when I saw it, I thought to myself, if I was sitting in the boat, legitimately, if I was sitting in the boat, I knew it was coming. So the difference is that I think they caught that field off guard. And I don't quite know why. I don't quite know why... Um, Greg Searle and, uh, and Ed Coode and um, all these guys out there, James and my, uh, Matthew, um, I don't know why they are quite caught off guard. That's probably the first thing. So as a competitor, know your competitors really well is probably the key. And so when Jean Christophe you know, starts launching into it, um, if you had a half a boat length on him or you're right there with him, the first thing you do is you don't panic, but the, 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 with that thought you go, but you can't hesitate either. So the French, I think, um, what their courage meant that they would go for 500 metres. Yeah. Now, if you were able to stay with them for 500 metres, then you could roll them from there. Now, that means you've really got to go when they go. You can't give them a half a metre or, or a canvas. And the, the, the biggest antidote to that is to making sure that you've got three quarters or a length up on them. So, so the intent, I think, would have been in the 2000 Olympic Games would be say, you know, get out to a boat length on those guys. Um, you probably would have been sitting with Ed and, and, and Greg Searle at the time, that boat length and a half, boat length out. But as soon as they move, don't think that you've actually got a boat length on them. Think that you've, and you've only got a foot on them, and now the race is on. Where I think the Brits thought that they had a boat length and a half, and the French are coming, and they thought, oh, yeah, but they're going to die, or they can't really get back to us. And when they gobbled up that margin so quickly, and this is what I think happens, is athletes think that they've got a lot more time to the finish line. And, and you know, what, 700 metres, 600 metres seems like a long way. But the fact is, the Olympic Games isn't, isn't won in the last 300 metres. Very rarely do you get the gold medal because the last 300 metres or 400 metres. So to wait for the last 300 or 400 metres is just bonkers. 
So when the French went at the thousand meters, and you felt that first stroke they go, personally, I would have gone right there and then. I would have just thrown the whole house, the sink, you know, everything <laughs> at it right there and then. Now I wouldn't have gone to forty-two strokes a minute because that's sort of not my way of doing it. But I would have rode as hard as I possibly could per stroke and encouraged my teammate to do the same thing, and said, "Right now, this is game on," which is what we've trained to do. So. For me, that was the mistake that the field made that day. They thought that the French were going to run out of steam or they thought the French weren't going to keep going once they started that. But what that meant was they actually didn't study the French. And if you pick up the six races where they'd won medals over that last 10-year period, six races where they've done exactly the same thing from 1,000 metres. You know? so, so for me, that was you know, really poorly executed as competitors uh, next to them. And, and hopefully, I would sort of go, if you're sitting in a boat next to them, you wouldn't make that same mistake. Yeah, and I think uh, I think also really I, I find a lot of respect for them to be able to do that in the th- you know in the third five hundred being the hardest five hundred of the race, and then having the presence presence of mind in the last two hundred and fifty meters or so when they're out of tickets to be able to row well enough to keep the boat speed up just enough to get over the the line in first place. If we're talking about pairs rowing, can't really ignore the elephant in the room. Do you think you would have uh, given the Kiwi pair a go uh, if you take you at your peak versus them at their peak? So let's do the full hypothetical. If you had Hamish, Eric, myself, Duncan Free, James Tompkins, um, Matthew Pinson, Stephen Redgrave, all on this all, all on this call right now, and you said to us all, would you back yourselves in? Yes. <laughs> Every so, single so one of you is going to back yourselves. Is, is you're a competitor. Um, I would have loved to have raced those guys. Um, likewise, I know that I would have loved to have raced us. Um, and and would you would you be better, faster? Who knows? I, I would never claim anything like that. They are the fastest pair that's ever gone on a rowing course, 2,000 metres in a pair, the fastest pair ever in history. And it's going to take a while, a long while, for coaches and athletes to catch up to what they were doing because Dick Tonks' program was extraordinary in terms of how hard it was. And those guys, their physical capacity, their mental capacity, um, the way they rode the boat, everything was, was, was unbelievable. Even though that lots of people would look at it on the outside and go, it doesn't look perfect when they paddle, but you just look at the way the boat moves. So, um, you know, they went 608. Um, I always felt that we could go 608, 610. I always felt that was possible in a pair. Um, but in my heart of hearts, I also think six minutes is possible in a pair. And, and I think that's one of the things about watching those guys as well is that they eventually got to the point where they went as fast as they could in that combination. Um, but either of them could be rowing with someone else right now and maybe taking that a little bit further. And, and that was probably my experience in my career is you might not be the one that takes it further, but your crewmate might take it further. Or, or you might be the one that takes it further, but the fact is you've always got to believe you can go further and, 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 and take it faster. So, so to put... You know, put us on the water toe to toe. You know, I'd certainly back myself in to go. I'd give them a good bloody run for their money. Um, and 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 likewise, they would be sitting there same thing, going, "Wouldn't this be fantastic to see if they can dominate us and put five or six seconds into us?" You know, so um, you know, I know George and and Nathan, you know, had raced those guys in the pair a lot of times, and those guys had beaten George and Nathan a number of times in New Zealand, and beaten them by the same sort of margins we were beating beating George and Nathan by. So I think. Deep down inside, we all know that there's a certain speed you can travel, and uh, and so those races would have been fascinating. But uh, you know what they've done um, to set that up and do it over such a long period of time—that is just extraordinary. And and I'll go one step further with with Hamish. You know, I'd said for a long, long time watching him as a 
under 23 athlete when I raced against him in New Zealand in an Aussie 8 there was a scratch combination that went over there and saw him at the start of that combination in the fall um, when he joined them after 2004 he is got to be he has to got to he has to be one of the most amazing powder weight athletes on this planet in any sport you know so things so to be 85 kilograms doing 544 or 545 on an ergo um, that is extraordinary what he's doing in cycling now is equally uh, amazing so you know you'd always back yourself in but bloody hell it'd be uh, it'd be an amazing race wouldn't it no yeah. of course and I think I think also what we, we didn't speak too much about it if you had uh, you and Duncan Free the, the the Kiwi pair and then of course Redgrave and Pinsent on the line I think that would be yeah. a humdinger of a race yeah, people would pay big money I think to to watch that race but then yeah you just gotta, gotta just find some genetic change that you can do turn back the clock in time yeah, <laughs> yeah. maybe one day we will uh, we'll be able to, to to see something like that but okay so so then you you, you go through your, your backup and you decide that you, you're still not uh, done with the rowing game and and there's still more more in you and you come back and and the the awesome foursome gets back together basically for for London and yeah that was a, that's also another really good crew of yours and talk us through that now suddenly you 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 went from being the young buck in the four to the old dog and and how was how was that change oh it was fun i really enjoyed it i um the year before uh i mean we'd been working trying to do sort of a three-year period again and and the project was to have another crack at the four again um yeah and and dunks was involved early days and another guy called sam conrad and um, guys like James Chapman who in, ended up being the four that was a part of the squad um, Josh Dunkley Smith was the find um, that uh, yeah he came out of uh, a school crew and had gone to Canberra and had an unbelievable VO2 and so we tried a number of different things over that sort of three year two year period and um, and 2011 was a really challenging year I had a rib stress fracture um, part of the way through the um, part of the way through the season and that was really hard um, but to sort of find the crew where I was sitting there Dunks uh, hit by a car so I was sitting there as the older athlete and the sole older athlete really who'd, who'd been around for a while and James Chapman was 32 so um, so to be sitting there with Josh Dunkley Smith sitting in front of me in this London four um, James Chapman in the bow sitting uh, in the two seat and uh, Will Lockwood in the bow we came together December was the first race we got put together for a 5k time trial and um, uh, and the 2k race and, and we did this 2k race and we went yeah, 5.52, I think it was, on a day which wasn't particularly quick. And we won the four and, you know, no one thought too much of it. And everyone went back to their training. And um, Lyle McCarthy, who was Kim Brennan's coach in uh, Rio, he uh, he reminded me, you know, a, a week or two later, he said, oh, when I saw that four in the water paddle off, he goes, that looked good. And I went, oh, really? Why? And he goes, it just, just looked good. It looked easy. It looked good. You guys look like you know what you're doing, even though you haven't rode together. I went, oh. So... A comment like that just locks in your memory bank, and uh, we came through the trialing process. And Josh and I had been going really well, and uh, and Will and James had been sort of middle pack in the pair and all that sort of stuff. And we get to the very end of the trials, and the selectors are sitting there. And having been an older athlete, you say older dog. Having been an older athlete, I was now afforded the opportunity to sit in on selection meetings and have a bit of a have a bit of a, a say about what might be possible in a boat and feedback about how the boats were going. And, Noel Donaldson, as the head coach, said, um, so, uh, look, are you happy with this last combination? I said, oh, look, it was okay, but I tell you, there was one four early in the year that we did in December that, you know, Lyle said this about how it looked, and I remember at the time thinking it was actually a really easy row, and he goes, oh, what was that? And I said, oh, it was actually James Chapman and Will Lockwood, and, and because they'd been in the mix, they were legitimately good contenders for the four, and 
And Noel goes, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'd be happy to go back out tomorrow and do one more race. You know? and, and I think Noel was surprised because I was always pretty reluctant because I was educated to do as few races as possible. And, uh, and so we put the boat back on the water and it, and it flew. It went like 46 or 48 the next day. And um, we all got off the water and the selectors turned around and said, geez, that was really quick prognostically compared to everyone else. Uh, not just in the fours, but across the team. And so we got the nod, and we had sort of uh, seven months together, and um, and it was really cool. Like, to have Josh, who was, you know, 23 years of age, Will, that same age, Chato, 32, um, you know, I was 37, to have a group of guys who were so enthusiastic about the rowing opportunity they had ahead of them, and uh, two guys, first-time Olympians, um, to know that the British were flying and the British were going to continue to put together the best combination and dominant you know, dominate the uh, the field to then sort of come up with some some grand ideas about going from third place to the world championships the year before to you know why don't we have a real crack at going for gold and don't take a backward step here and belief you know to try to get guys to believe in themselves on a world championship or give the games together um, amazing and I think when we raced Lucerne and so the simple thing was we raced Lucerne it was fast conditions in the heat and uh, fast and bouncy and the Germans right there with us to sort of 7.50 and then we just started moving away and uh, and then we, we hit the finish line and we saw what the splits were at the finish going I think 5 minutes 42 or 44 or something like that, like that. and we're going geez for a heat row that was that was quick like we're, and we're looking at each other going how exciting is that and then the bridge come down 5 minutes later and do 5 minutes 37.8 or something we're going shit okay it's a really quick day um, but straight away we started to sort of think actually we're in this you know we've, we've got the capability and, and the te- technicality of how we row the boat um, and probably the boldness to sort of give this a go. And so we just had a fun year. And uh, and to take on the guys who were the reigning world champions and Olympic champions and push them all the way um, was, was, was a joy. And to see the guys at the end of it all where we just embraced after winning the silver medal a number of times and the head coach, Noel Donaldson, sort of said, like, how have you created such a bond? And I said, well, we just, we just made sure we all felt equal in the process. So you say top dog or old dog sort of thing in that sort of situation, but what I tried to do as an older athlete was to make them all feel that they were just as good as me and they were just as important as me and that in the end what they said about how to train and how they wanted to go and what they wanted to do was equally as important. And so we just created that equality in the crew and and um, and just shared a lot about our fears and, and excitements and joys and all that sort of stuff and it just seemed to gel and we got a lot out of it. So it was, uh, it was a pleasure. Yeah, so I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of good themes in in your answer there, and then you mentioned uh, Josh Dunkley Smith, and I mean, you said Hamish is a <laughs> physical specimen, but I mean, Josh is also unbelievable. I can't believe what he's just done on the on the ergo. I mean, he was. I mean, that must have been a serious cannon in the in the boat there. Yeah, and 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 to help sort of understand, so I rode with Josh. I uh, didn't realise this. He was a school kid. Three school kids rode in a club crew that we had in, with David Crawshay and I, uh, and I think it might have been 2008 or, or whatever it might have been, and at Mercantile Rowing Club. And Josh was, uh, I think, the two seat of that crew with a, a mop top of hair on his head and um, didn't really know too much about the kid and all that sort of stuff. And then years later, I kept hearing this story in, uh, when I was returning that the AOS had found this uh, young physical prodigy, um, young Josh Dunkley Smith from Victoria. And I rang Noel Donaldson. I said, Oh, can you tell me a bit about this Josh kid? And he said, oh, mate, he's unbelievable. Like, he's just his physical capacity. Um, he doesn't know it. Um, if we hadn't attested him, we wouldn't know it. Yeah, he's unassuming and all that sort of stuff. And so I sort of teed up the idea of going for a paddle with him, getting to know him, and, um, and, he, and he's, uh, he's wired a little bit differently to a lot of people. And, um, and I love the fact that um, he's a pretty sensitive sort of soul and, um, and has 
a mental capacity, which is once he dials into something, uh, it's incredible. And then he has a physical, uh, the, the physical genetics that actually give him access to things that probably a lot of us don't really have. And um, so when I rode with him, what I noticed was if you said go uh, and you really got him excited and, and you made him confident that, that if he went, you know, it, it wasn't going to kill him, um, he just starts spinning and going. Um, and so the challenge was, was to get him connected in the water and the challenge was to get him tall enough in the boat that um, that leg drive and hip drive that he had um, wasn't wasted. And um, and then over the years on the Ergo, you've just watched bit, bit by bit. And I think Tim McLaren had him in Sydney for the Aussie 8 one year. And um, Tim is a, um, uh, lo- he's a lovely exponent of long-distance Ks, you know, long Ks, long, smooth, easy rowing. And, long ergos and all this sort of stuff and then all of a sudden Josh did this ergo and I think he did it 38 or 39 everyone's gone holy heck you know so um, I remember seeing this kid and thinking to myself like he just doesn't know what he's got and uh, and so what's really quite cool is when he did that world record um, you have a few text messages and you see what everyone's talking about and you go he can go 5.30 um, you know, and, uh, and at 104 kilograms or 102 kilograms he might have been at the time um, it's just a very special thing but it's not the physical thing it's actually his mental capability to just go I'm sitting on that number and I'm deviating from it um, and I think that's sort of what I noticed as an older athlete watching this kid was I think that scared him um, of just how deep he could get himself in the hole when he went to that mental state but not many athletes have that mental state where they can just almost shut everything off bury themselves um, the physical capacity has supports it, um, but all of a sudden the two K stops, and it's almost like he sort of comes out of his days, and you sort of look at him, and he's like, he doesn't realise what he's done, um, and that's just a, a freakish mental quality that I've, I think people have not really, um, not really noticed in him. They've always thought there was just purely aerobic capacity that holds him in good stead, but I've just, I just reckon it's his mental capacity. In 2012, when he took off at the start, it was all about trying to get him to calm down. Um, yeah, and uh, and to his credit, he he was able to get his his rhythm back under the control. But the start line in 2012 was like he just he just went. Yeah, and I remember sitting in the three seat going, "Holy heck, I'm trying to hang on here." So, <laughs> um, yeah, and, and that's the thing they call him the donk. I think yeah, it'd be like the engine. Um, yeah, and uh, and he just has it. Yeah, so sad that he's decided to do what he's going to do. But I think the reality is for rowing Australia, I think. They've probably got to look and go, you know, when you've got unique characters like that, you've got to sort of think about how you keep them involved rather than a, a homogenous sort of approach, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's that's another big uh, big name to get on the on our podcast and have a have a chat to. Yeah, we definitely need him. Yeah, uh, you'll love it. Need him on there. Um, okay, so we're gonna we're gonna change uh, tact a little bit here because I have a question. So, looking when we're going through and looking for for races and stuff of yours and and doing some research, so I I, I search on YouTube. Um, uh, awesome foursome Australia and third on the list is just this fantastic video of uh, Goulburn Valley Fruit (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you boys have brought it home now (laughs) (laughs) so that was a a fantastic advert that you that you did Uh, just tell us uh, just tell us a little bit about that (laughs) yeah yeah, I'll I'll keep this one brief for you Um, I when I joined the four uh they were famous for a few things. One, winning gold. Um, they were sponsored by a beer company at the time, and they were also sponsored by this fruit company, um, and they did these fruit ads. And the first fruit ads were really simple. It was just like peaches, mango, peaches, peaches, mango, peaches, and they carry a boat around in front of a tropical backdrop. Um, and they were doing this on Australian television. So kids loved it. Parents loved it. They sold lots of fruit. Um, they, were, they were heroes because they were gold medalists, and they were laid-back sort of Aussie larrikins. 
I joined the guys late in 95, uh, early 96, when I got sent back to Melbourne um, from the AS to row with them. And uh, I arrived in Melbourne and James and Mike and Nick are sitting there saying, right, young fella, you've joined us. And um, part of the deal is you've actually got to um, do what we do. And we do we do this thing with these two sponsors and Andrew Cooper's retiring and he's pulling out of all that. So you've got to, you've got to do it with us. And I'm going, what? What do you mean? He goes, yeah, we've actually got an ad in about a month's time. And I'm going, an ad? that's about gold medals. And they're going, yeah, yeah, but you just got to do the ad. So I did a fruit commercial before I had a gold medal. <laughs> and I remember that day doing the fruit commercial going, how embarrassing is this? If I never get a gold medal, this is what I'll be you know. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, it was, I, I was, I was like, okay, I'm going to speak to Drew, Drew Ginn tomorrow. I need to do, do some research. And then I watched this advert and I'm like, I'm so happy I got to see this. <laughs> Uh, it's not a, you, you can't take yourself too seriously can you no, no of course of course yeah. I but just it, hope they they paid you guys a lot for that <laughs> yeah, they paid us well but it split across four people so you know, yeah no, as a young athlete it was good money for me because I was young and uh, you know just starting out I mean it wouldn't it's not what athletes get paid these days but um, but yeah it was amazing to do yeah I mean, I'm cool. sure I'm sure and we'll put a we'll put a link for that uh, ad in the yeah, yeah, in the right. in the, the show notes so people can go watch Okay, so moving on. Um, so okay, so just going, we're gonna just touch right back onto onto those injuries and just tell us about how how it was like. How did dealing with those injuries set you up for for those for the next successes? Yeah, well, I think that's it's it's important to understand that I think you don't learn to ride bike unless you fall off it. Um, you don't learn to walk unless you fall over. Um, I think there's a lot of what happens in sport, and I had the same thing around me, physios and doctors, and everyone's trying to stop you get injured. Now that's great, like avoid the risks and all that sort of stuff, but I learned so much from being injured, um, and I learned there were limitations to what I could do. I learned that there were different ways of um, adapting my movement to overcome injuries, and uh, and so then you start to sort of have this realization that there's so many ways to do things, um, there's so many things that can go wrong, but there's so many things that can go right. So. My first injury was just because of stupidity um, in the gym, doing squats, um, hadn't been training for four weeks after World Championships, egotistically pushing myself next to my uh, two mates who were training in the gym at the time and um, not paying attention, and not paying attention to my form, but also the fact that I wasn't that strong at the time and all that sort of thing. So, so you get injured and then the lesson is, geez, listen to your body and do things with quality, but also do things slightly more realistically. So, so that was a cool lesson there. Later on, Getting injured um, sort of meant that I learned how to breathe better. Um, I learned how to um, do core stability work better. I learned how to be um, more attentive to being mobile um, and, and looking after my body so I can get through the range of movement. We always like to row long. So mobile through the hips and really active through the hips and being able to be long but relaxed was really key. You don't want to be long and tense because if you're long and tense, you just spend more energy. And so getting injured meant that, okay, if I'm going to be long again, I'm going to put my body and my back in a precarious position. How do I make myself really stable, but how do I do it where I've got greater flexibility? And the breathing part was really fascinating with all the injuries because at the heart of it all, when you're injured, there's not much you can do, particularly with backs and ribs and all this sort of stuff. And so, But one of the things you often can do is you can walk and you can breathe and you can visualize and you can do all these things. So what injury gave me was time to get those fundamentals right and uh, and so I always found that core stability, particularly with back injuries, was that when you get a back injury, everything sort of switches off. You know, the transverse obliques around the side of the, um, the gut, um, you know, the, the muscle around the, the base of the spine, the multifidus, you know, that sort of switches off. Um, so you get the pain center there, but you get all these other things that sort of switch off. And so 
really good breathing activities and things like postures and yoga and all that sort of stuff, you know, other things that switch all that back on. So the underlying thing might still be there, but you get your stability back and you get your, um, your grip strength around your spine back and all that sort of stuff. And, and the only way you do it is by really good breathing and really good postures and really good holding. And so, so injuries for me are a critical part. I look back and go, you know, if I hadn't been injured, I, I don't know that I would have had the, the career I had. Um, the difference to that is James Tompkins didn't get overly injured, but he was also someone who was very motivated to look after his body. And we had a guy in Melbourne called Mark McGrath who was um, a movement specialist who we worked with for many, many years. And Mark was always coming up with really interesting exercises for us and um, and things to get us moving in different ways. And so, you know, without that lesson, those lessons, and, and without that sort of intent of, you know, move well, breathe well, um, you know, yeah, you want to row hard, but do it in such a way that you get the absolute maximum out of yourself. And, um, and so, yeah, falling off the bike a few times was actually helpful because then you learn how to get back on, but you also learn how to ride better each time. So, um, you know, so two back surgeries is never great. Um, you know, if I could have my time again, I you know, probably wish I hadn't had back surgeries or been injured quite that bad. But I sort of think about all the stuff I've learned and the way I rode the boat towards the end of my career. And I thought to myself, well, you know, I may not have rowed for that long and I, and I may not have rowed as well um, or as confidently if I hadn't have gone through the ups and downs like that. Drew, just, just coming towards the end of the interview, um, if you could, I mean, you, 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 gave a, you gave a little, you spoke a bit about that earlier, but if, if you had to give advice to a younger athlete that has just come out of school and maybe got, has been thrown in the deep end or is really motivated to, to chase their Olympic dreams or whatnot, um, what advice would you give to a younger athlete about injury prevention? Yeah, there's, there's, there's a couple of parts to this, I think, that I'm, and I'm being mindful of what I sort of say here because one of the things you can't hide, hide from is you, you've got to do the work. And, and often you're in programs where you don't necessarily have a lot of choice about how many Ks and how intense and all that sort of stuff. So for me, one is, as a young athlete, you've got to sort of go, okay, so mentally be understanding where you're going to be going, but also understanding full well that no one knows more about your body than you do. I mean, you may not be able to put it into the right sort of terminology for a physio and all that sort of stuff, but pain is still pain. Um, and, and for me, if you feel pain that's um, uh, a bad pain, which is going to cause real injury, that's what you've got to verbalise. That's what you've got to speak up about. Um, that's what you, you've got to have the courage to communicate. Um, if if it's fatigue, pain, then that's different. You know, and, and that's almost like learn how to suck that up. <laughs> and, and all of us going through the training years is learning how to get better at just reading the two different signals. You know, um, the fatigue that will lead to getting stronger and fitter versus the pain that will lead to getting injured and broken down. And so, as young athletes, I reckon the biggest advice I would have is. Get an understanding of those two kinds of information and then le- learn to sort of work out who you're communicating to and how you're communicating um, so you actually get a positive outcome for yourself. Um, the thing for me in terms of the training, I, I don't think enough people do enough work on breathing. I said that before. If you lay on the floor and you breathe all the way in and you breathe all the way out and just push, push, push air out as far as you possibly can, all your core switches on. Um now, put this in a, um, a vertical plane and, and horizontally moving inside the boat. If you breathe all the way in and breathe all the way out, as you breathe all the way out, your core switches on. So even if you have a curved spine, even if you have some things that are a bit funky about your movement, that's all there. But if you're switching the spine on really, really well as you breathe out before you take that catch or um, as you breathe out a couple of times on the way forward, if you do that, you're activating all the time. Um, what I often find for a lot of young athletes, and I've seen it for myself, is we breathe quite shallowly, and then when we're really stressed, we even breathe less shallow, 
like it gets shallower and shallower. And so we gasp for it. It's like <laughs> this sort of stuff. But that's not core. Yeah. And so what we're doing is we're allowing our core to switch off and get tired. Um, and so the young ones for me, it's like learn how to use your core, learn how to really switch that on, um, and then learn how to differentiate between you know the good stuff that's going to make you fitter and stronger and faster over the years, and the stuff that's potentially going to give you a give you an issue. Um, I think. You know, what we do notice is when there is an alignment issue um, and when you get yourself into really vulnerable positions, once you start getting pain that's bad, um, you know, you've actually got to change your position or improve your core stability. And that just requires an investment of time. I always said that if you're going to do 20 hours of rowing on the water, you know, you've got to back that up with something that's getting you ready for that 20 hours of rowers and, and something that's going to get you recovered from that 20 hours of rowing. And, and a lot of athletes, I think, when they're in tiring programs is – they come down, they go through some routine stuff because they're told to do it, not because they're really trying to explore how to get better with their body. They do the training, they're exhausted, and then it's almost like just relax and switch off. It's like, no, no, you've got to keep working on this sort of stuff so your body's there the next day, the next week. Um, and as a young body, the other part too is it'll come with time. The more training you do, um, I remember hearing the story about Hamish Bond with you know, all these rib stress fractures that he'd had through his early careers. Um, you know, now, that was in a program that was pretty arduous and uncompromising. Um, but I do notice with young athletes, if you stayed long enough, um, and as long as you don't have really debilitating things with your back, then then you'll get there. Um, but communicating the back ones is really key. I've seen young athletes sit quietly and not speak up to the physio or not speak up to the coach or find someone they can talk to about it. And then they row for six weeks with really bad pain and uh, and finally they break down. And by that time, it's become dysfunctional, hasn't it? So I, think so. Um, I don't know how it is over there, but I do know in Australia that there was a, a lack of tolerance for, for young kids when they voice their concerns because it was almost like a sign of weakness. So uh, for young athletes, I say, you just got to find an outlet. You've got to find people you can talk to, you can trust. Yeah, I think that's some, uh, some, really, some really quality advice there. And also the, the breathing stuff is interesting because I think uh, we haven't heard anyone else speak about that sort of aspect of, of activating your core like that. So um, I like that idea. I think uh, that's, yeah. quite a, that's quite a clever, a, a interesting thing to, to think about. So now to finish off our, our interview, I don't know if you've listened to, to other episodes, but we always have these uh, quick fire questions that we, we ask all the guests on the show. So a couple of questions and uh, you can answer them whichever way you feel fit. Yeah. So Drew, the, the first question, all right, um, we got to speak about <laughs> racing, racing any bow class at the Olympic Games, but you don't, I know you've raced uh, a lot of Olympics in the pair in the fall. But you can you can race not Olympic events like the Cox Pair and the Octopole if you really wanted to. So if you could race any boat class at the Olympic Games, what would it be? The umpire's boat. Yes, that's the best answer I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, that's great. I don't know if that counts as racing, though. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but see, the thing is, any time you can go and win it. Yeah. Oh. Oh, but I feel like being a being an umpire is is not a, a glorious position. I think it's quite a it's quite a tough job. <laughs> I just think, imagine being the umpire when it was Mahe Drysdale and um and the Croatian guy at the end of that race. Yeah, yeah. Damian Martin. Yeah, first hand, you know. So I mean, that sort of thing is is extraordinary if you get to see it first hand like that. Yeah, well, well you, you get could... to watch all of these these amazing races uh, first hand. So the next question is if you could choose any three people from any time in any country to, to row in a Coxus 4 with, who would your, your three crewmates be? Okay, I, I reckon if you grabbed Cody Carpinen and you grabbed, uh, 
Oh, he's like to throw him in there. Um, and Madgrave, I reckon that'd be really quite fascinating to put a four together like that. Yeah, and then uh, moving on, Drew, what is your... Do I need to explain why? <laughs> yeah, no, I think, uh, yeah, give us a little bit, give us a little bit more uh, detail there for that answer. Well, I always thought Redgrave was amazing at following people, even though in his early career he's good at sitting in the stroke set of the pair. But Purdy cup in and had something that was just unbelievable as a, as a sculler, the Finnish sculler and what he did in the boat. But imagine sticking Redgrave behind him in the three seat. You know, and imagine saying to Eastop Cop, you know, and, and I'm assuming you've said that I get to choose his in the boat with me. Um, I always um, was inspired by Eastop Cop being about 85 kilograms and you know, a, a go-getter in the boat. So mm-hmm. imagine getting that horsepower in the stern pair and getting two little lightweights sitting up in the back end of the boat and you know, trying to make a four go fast. I reckon that'd be awesome to see. <laughs> tear it apart probably. Yeah, no, that's a it's a really good onset. I think I think a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of heavyweights. I mean, we've We've made this mistake many times with South Africa is to naturally assume that you will bleed faster than a lightweight. Um, because, you know, when we when I left school and, and joined the South African squad, our London forwards just won gold. So we had a really quick lightweight around. And we had a many times getting <laughs> our asses shown to us by the lightweights. And I think it's, <laughs> it's, it's actually interesting to see how close we really are, and there's not actually a hell of a difference between the two groups. And that's and the four is is the is the epitome of that as a boat class, isn't it? The the four you can almost have lightweights and heavyweights all rowing together. I think the eight gets slightly too heavy as a craft for the lightweights, and the pairs a bit a bit grippy on the water, so things so. But you put that four that's a bit more flighty in there, and you, you put the two athletes together, and you watch the heavyweight athletes. They stopped being big hulks of guys in the in the late eighties and early nineties, didn't they? And they everyone's become sort of almost like leaner greyhound sort of athletes, you know. So, so. yeah, that four there's there's definitely some some magic in uh, in that Cox's four, as it's like just got that that balance between that speed, the the power, and the and the finesse. Yeah. So the next uh, the next question is what is your the fav- your favorite rowing race that you find yourself watching over and over again and it doesn't have to be one of your races. Um, the Danish in uh, just trying to think what year it was two thousand and four I think when Eskil Leveson was stroking them in in, in Athens and uh, just put it way out there early on and uh, let the Aussies and a few other crews like the Italians come at them, come at them, come at them, but they sat there on 40, just tapping along and then pushed away again. It was extraordinary to watch that 2004 Olympic Games with those guys. Yeah, that's a, such a cool crew. Actually, it's just awesome to watch Eskil race in, yeah. in, in any of his races. He's such an athlete. Yeah, really elastic is the way I used to sort of think about him, like just that really elastic sort of outside arm slaps to the position and then slings it through the back and you just sort of watch and go like that is just amazing yeah he's got those like those loose shoulders and they almost look uh, almost disconnected and then he even it's even strange because even when he swaps sides later on in his career he keeps that same that same funny movement which is is quite interesting yeah which hard to do right because your inside shoulder if you've rode for years your inside shoulder will get sort of more bound um and restricted and your outside one will be the, the looser one so to go the other way and still get the same effect is uh yeah it's quite surprising yeah yeah so next next question drew putting you back in the hot seat um if you were in charge at wool rowing what would you change <laughs> good question if I was in charge at world rowing, uh, I'd, I'd read the tea leaves first and realise that if we don't reduce numbers of boats down 
uh, for Olympic Games is going to be done to us. And I reckon it'd be exciting to see more rowers doubling up. So how do you, how do you, how do you go somewhere in the future where all of a sudden all of our athletes are doing three different boat classes and they get the, they get the chance against each other to roll the dice in pairs, fours, eights, or whatever it might be, or even short distance rowing as well, um, just to turn things on their head for the sport, the Olympic Games. Because otherwise, I think if we don't do some of that sort of stuff, that it's either going to be done to us, or otherwise, um, other sports are going to get uh, precedent over us. Yeah, and I think you know we've also had similar discussions about about that, and also a big one is how do you you make the sport a bit more spectator friendly. And a lot of the answers that we get from people are, are yeah. talking about yeah. maybe introducing a shorter distance, uh, like a sprint event over maybe 250 or 500 meters. I think that would be, you know, quite something because then the margins are going to get really, really tight and the spectators will be able to watch the race from start to finish. Yeah, and, and you look at any sport worldwide, um, it's amazing how as soon as you reduce down, all of a sudden, as you say, the gaps become less, the spectators get more excited. So then you don't need to know the sport too well to just appreciate the spectacle. Um, and I used to talk to Duncan Free about this. It's like, yeah, if we're gonna if we're gonna row, we've got to we've got to almost think like we're entertainers. So let's not want the race to be seven seconds apart. Let's want our competitors to go just as fast as we are, because that's it's that babble to babble kind of race that has everyone in the grandstands going. This is amazing. Um, but the average spectator who's tuning in for once every four years, they don't get all the other nuances. So if you have it taking six minutes, which is a long time to watch it, if you have it um, lengths apart at the finish line, they don't get that, you know. So, you know, so I think you're right. Like, if you have 500-meter race, 1,000-meter races in there, um, yeah, and even other things. I think there could be sports where I think they do it in some of the stuff like the Red Bull challenges where they're out of the water, they're running around over bridges and all that sort of stuff. I, I just think the sport's got to break from the 2K tradition. Um, yeah. I love the 2Ks, no doubt about it, but I think if we don't start doing that sort of stuff and showing that rowing has a lot more appeal to it, um, you know, we're going to keep getting seen as being a bit stuck in our ways. So, yeah, and you don't necessarily need to change it at the Olympics. You can you can introduce these things at other times of the season and just sort of test them out and see how they how they work and how they how they affect the sport as well. Yeah, big time. And and that's why I say about um, doing things that are really innovative. Totally agree with you guys. And and, and I the other one too that I see for Olympic athletes is there's a lot of Olympic sports where you, the very best athletes can get the chance to win multiple gold medals at one Olympic Games. Yeah, yes. And and, and I sort of look at it and go to myself, there's no reason why kayakers should be able to win three gold medals if they're damn good or two gold medals and swimmers should be able to win seven gold medals. And athletes like Usain Bolt, extraordinary as he is, but can walk away with three gold medals. And you go, right, well, when do we shift our sport to allow the Hamish Bonds to walk away with three gold medals in Olympic Games? You know, so and, uh, you know, and it's it's just looking at the sport in a different way, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I actually heard uh, someone, I can't remember who, but uh, telling me that it would be quite cool to, to have, so like the eight, for instance, is you have to double up if you raise the eight. So like you have to raise the pair oh. and the four, and then only can your country raise the eight, which is, is would, yeah. would, would provide that, because I mean, you can't have fresh athletes racing against athletes that have, have raced uh, four races before. And so. we can all appreciate the intensity that goes into <laughs> a two-kilometer race. Oh, but that's, that's the whole thing, isn't it? Like, there's nothing better than watching... I mean, we love when we're in the race to feel fresh and all that sort of stuff, but there's nothing better as a spectator to watch something where you can just sort of see they're on the limit, you know? And so imagine a rowing race where it's your third race of the day <laughs> and you've gone from pair four to eight 
and you've all done the same thing and you've only got a squad of you know, eight athletes that can actually do all the events um, and you get to the end of the week and you're watching races and you go, right, we're really seeing human capacity um, at its absolute best and uh, and then you're seeing fatigue levels play out in terms of providing result differences as well. You know, how do you, how do you get through that many races or how do you get through that many boat classes um, and, and what do you might be targeting and all that sort of stuff. I think, I think if you had people doing multiple events, I think there'd be an element of um, chess play or, or, or doing it like a chess game where you know not every move is equal not every move is the same like how do you set your week up so you actually get the best outcome for the week and um, and that would yeah, that would create something pretty intriguing for the competition sort of thing so I'm a big fan of we can't keep thinking we've got to have a large population of athletes at the Olympic Games I mean more sports come in um, the sooner we go right every single country the max number of athletes you can have guys and girls lightweights heavyweights is is 20 yeah, and so by by then going that, and then you're saying right, but you still got all these boat classes. But uh, yeah, that's also interesting. Uh, boat classes. Yeah, yeah. that is that yeah. is there's another good one. Well, you went on uh, on the spectator friendliness of of the competition of like the closeness of the racing. When we chatted to Olaf, he wanted to see uh, crashes in the race. <laughs> <laughs> so he he, well, he was. This, this, this. <laughs> But how good's that? Like, do you think the old what is a bump, bumps race that gets done in the UK? Where yeah. you know, like it, it's. Craft hitting each other and all that sort of stuff shouldn't be a concern. Blades hitting each other. I mean, that's what river racing has been all about for years, and that's what's exciting about river racing. Um, you know, so some of the best facets of rowing, we don't actually showcase at the games. And, yeah. uh, and so for me, I sort of go, like, what's the fear of blades hitting each other? What's the fear of you know, boats almost colliding and all that sort of stuff and, uh, and not deliberately taking themselves out, but just natures of the course or the duration or the distance or whatever it might be that all of a sudden it's um it's happened you know that would change it for spectators dramatically yeah and i think i mean if you had to sum up just the, this whole discussion it's all about you know bringing innovation to the sport and it doesn't necessarily have to happen at the olympics it can start at a at a lower level but we have to move on to the next question so it's a rowing <laughs> podcast it's a rowing podcast and we have to ask this question what is your pb on the 2000 meter ergo uh, oh, uh, 552 in nine, uh, 2007. There you go. Okay. Done, done and dusted. Uh, we have to, I mean, I know a lot of, <laughs> I, there's this kind of culture in rowing to be a bit, a bit um, secretive. I don't know, secretive about that 2K PV. So it's, oh, there's nothing secretive about a 2K score that's 552 when your peer group's always going below you. <laughs> yeah, shit. <laughs> So, if you could uh, choose a different sport to go to the Olympics in, what would it be and why? And I'm also very interested because you've done quite a few different sports. Uh, because it's not there yet, I can't say one sport. Um, but uh, due to my other passion is cycling. So, if I uh, had my time again as an athlete, you know, that was another sport I did as a kid that I really loved and went back to it later on. Um, the sport that's not at the Olympics, it's about to be the Olympics, is surfing. You know, so... They've been, uh, you know, between rowing, surfing, and cycling, and other sports I love. But I think I, re- I really was keen um, years later, what, 2009, to have a real crack at getting to the games on the bike. Um, you know, and I've always loved my biking. So, and just, you know, it's like the Giro's on at the moment. You know, like you start till two, two o'clock in the morning watching the Giro because it's, uh, it's a real passion sort of thing. So I love cycling. Actually, Drew, can we just, I know we at the end of the interview, but I have to ask, can you just chat to us a bit about that 24 hour? challenge that you did to try to break the world record for most distance covered on a bike tell us about how tell us about that a bit yeah so it was a bit of a project around 
main motive was um, fundraising for a charity that I'm involved with, with Tour de Cure, which is um, all involved in cancer research and um, funding community initiatives that uh, help families with cancer. Um, the intent behind having a crack at the world record was if I had a crack at the world record, there's more chance of getting some big support. Um, trained like I was going to go for it, um, went on a track that probably wasn't ideal. Um, I think I sat on for 200 Ks, I was sort of 39 and a half average. Um, I had to go 37 and a half average for the 24 hours, so we were traveling pretty well at that stage. Um, the thing for me is, you know, I'd done enough long distance riding by that stage um, that I always knew getting through the night you know, is always the toughest part. Um, had some real ups and downs, um, so probably the second and third part of the motivation for this was put myself in a place where um, you just have to work out how to get through it. And, uh, and third part of the motivation was doing it with a team of friends who um, you know, would go through the 24 hours with you, helping you, supporting you, and you're, you're bonding together doing that. Um, I struggled. I, uh, I went from being those sort of speeds to through the night sort of sitting on 32s, 33s, 30s. Um, I stopped six times during the ride um, for a total of 15 minutes, um, so about a minute and a half to two minutes or so every single stop. Um, at one stage, I'm standing at the back end of the track um, and I think I can see this on the podcast. I'm standing there and one of the guys goes to me, what are you doing? I'm standing there going, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm t- going to the toilet, I'm pissing. And he, goes, he looks down <laughs> and he goes, no, you're not, mate. I seriously thought I was standing there pissing. I thought I'd been pissing for a minute and, and nothing was happening. And he looks at me and goes, do you still need to go? And I said, no, I feel like I've done it now. And, <laughs> and I got back on the bike and I started riding. And at that one moment where he reminded me afterwards, he goes, mate, seriously, were you okay? And I said, oh, I just, that's just, I just, that's what was happening. So you were delirious. Um, fatigue beyond all imagining. Uh, I finished the ride off pretty well. Like I sort of came home last at 100 k's, sort of averaging in at 38, 40 k an hour. And I've never hurt so much in my life. My neck was killing me. Um, I stopped, and uh, you know, one personally felt really proud to be able to get through it. Um, but just the support was unbelievable. We raised, I think it was $45,000 for, for Tour de Cure, and um, 836 k's I covered. Uh, which was crazy because it was a track count uh, difference because I rode the track really quite poorly. My Garmin uh, cycling was at 863 um, and because of the track count being the painted line and the shortest distance around and 36 and so there was a mental thing going on there as well. And Another guy recently, uh, Mitch Anderson's just uh, set the world record um, and he and I chatted a lot and shared a lot of notes and um, one of the comments he sort of said was uh, myself and a few others who started doing these things a couple of years ago he got inspired by, so he's now had a crack set of world record at 895k. Oh, 5k um, shorter so, than 900. Yeah, Since... it's extraordinary. And so the 900k mark, I think, is it's been for about eight years now, the mark that everyone's trying to get over yeah. um, in endurance cycling. Sort of so um, bloody good to do, but yeah, tough. Really that tough. is that is bloody crazy. Well, I'm very impressed. Well done. Cool. Um, so any parting words for our listeners or anything else you want to you wanna add? And we can finish off then. I've, I've covered a fair bit of territory for you. Yeah, <laughs> no, we've done one. some really, really quality stuff here. Uh, all, all I'd say is thanks for being patient with me. <laughs> no, no, absolutely no, pleasure. Thanks for giving us so much of your time. It was so awesome. I mean, it's so awesome to chat to to you and all the other athletes that we're chatting to. It's just giving us such cool insights and just being able to share these stories with the, the rowing community is, is something very cool. Yeah, fantastic. Well done on doing it too. Yeah, well, thanks. thanks very thanks, much, Harry. 
What's up, guys? Thanks for listening to the episode. Just once again, please go and share the show. Get one more person listening listening to the show. It really helps us grow, and we really enjoy bringing you guys content. So the more people that listen to us, the better content we can give you. Yeah, and you can get hold of us uh, on all of the social media, mostly Instagram, though, at The Row Show. And you can also email us at theroshowsa at gmail.com. Um, yeah, we'd love to hear from you guys. Drop us a message or go rate us and, uh, and leave us uh, a nice review there on uh, iTunes or any of your podcasting apps. Just, to, just before you leave us, here's a quality singing piece from uh, Drew... James Tompkins and the rest of his 1996 <laughs> that thing is fantastic.